have your Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. The um, author of Genesis was very deliberate in the way he constructed his narrative. And so that should make us wonder at the significance of chapter 38 in the storyline. This is one of the he leaves us with one of the biggest cliffhangers in all of Scripture. We just leave the story of Joseph as a slave in Potiphar's house in Egypt completely behind for one full chapter here and switch to one of his brothers, one of Joseph's brothers, Judah. You know the name of the tribe of Judah the minute you hear it because our Lord Jesus Christ came from this line. That fact couldn't be more important to the story of Judah because up to this point, Judah has been a calloused and greedy person. That's all we know of him. And most of this story will not improve on his character very much, not until the end. The narrator here is so brutally honest about Judah's flawed character that we have to think he was trying to tell us how horrible of a person Judah was at this time. He will, The narrator, that is the writer, will speed through about 20 years in the first 11 verses, and then spend the last 19 verses to cover one year. When an author does that kind of thing in a narrative, if you were watching that as a movie and the soundtrack, you'd feel the change in the music. You'd know, okay, this is where we're supposed to focus. This is where something major is going to happen. When he slows the pace like that, the writer's telling us that he wants our focus primarily on what unfolds between Judah and Tamar. This is a leader in the history of Israel who had just said in chapter 37, Judah that is, what profit is it if we kill our brother Joseph and conceal his blood? Come let us sell him. 37, 26, and 27. What profit is it? Let's sell him. And they did for 20 pieces of silver. Judah gave no thought whatsoever to God's promise to his great-grandfather Abraham. Remember, they knew this. I will make of you a great nation, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Those 11 brothers would have known as well as Cain did. I probably shouldn't be killing my brother. If there's been a promise to Adam for seed, if there's been a promise to Abraham for seed, you would think killing one of your brothers that could bear seed was not a good idea. So there's no regard for God's promise to Abraham from Genesis 12, 2 and 3. Promises that were later repeated, remember, to his father, Jacob, in twenty-eight fourteen. Instead, come, let us sell him. What profit is there in killing him? Judah didn't care about God's promises or his family. He had helped deceive his father with a story about the death of Joseph. Jacob would go down to Sheol mourning, the text says. So this is what Judah's leadership among his brothers has accomplished so far. The loss of a brother and lifelong sorrow for his father. Genesis will keep identifying a failure on the part of human beings to fully trust God to accomplish his plan of salvation. We'll see it over and over again. Maybe this is why God's fulfillment of the promise was so scandalous. Right? Covered in so much muck because he needs, wants us to see not only the depth of our need, depths to which God would have to go to save us, but to show us also the utter 
unstoppable, untouchable power of his amazing grace. God used the deception of a Canaanite woman named Tamar tonight in Genesis 38 to continue the family line of Judah. So the story of Genesis continues to work to assure us that God can accomplish his plan of salvation through, by using, human deception and disobedience. Beloved, God is adamant to show us in his word that his hands are dirty, so to speak. This is important. What That he doesn't just work in spite of, right? But with the mire of human sinfulness and evil. Now, if we miss that, if we miss that, we are missing part of how God has designed to reveal himself. In other words, what can be understood about God then won't be understood if we don't realize that this is part of how God reveals himself. And we cannot allow this to happen. We cannot miss who God is showing us he is. So let's pray and then we'll look at this passage. Father, I thank you tonight for the truth that is in your word concerning your son. This is his story, every chapter. And so, Father, I pray that we would understand this passage. Please help me preach it in a way that helps people understand it and doesn't get in the way. Father, I pray that we would be able, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to see our need as we read this passage and examine it. I ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for myself and for everyone who will listen. Amen. Verse 1 of Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Joseph had been taken from his father's house and his brothers. Judah leaves voluntarily to befriend the Canaanites. That's an act of disobedience right out of the gate. He's leaving God's covenant family to join with the enemy. His first Canaanite friend is Hira, who lives in the town of Adullam. Look at verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. We don't know her name. We only know the name of her father. But like his uncle Esau, Judah marries a Canaanite. It doesn't look good, right? Showing his callous disregard for his family, particularly for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who had been extremely clear that their sons not marry into the Canaanites. The Canaanites will eventually lose their land. Judah doesn't care. He does what he wants. Will God bless such a union with children? Yes. Look at verse 3. And she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Why would we need to know that? Right, that he was in Chezeb. Well, Chezeb, interestingly enough means town of lies. That's what it means, which couldn't be more appropriate for what's to come. Judah's progeny, though, looks very promising. Three sons. We've seen that. Noah, Adam had three sons. Noah had three sons. Terah had three sons. And the children grow up, right? Look at verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar means palm tree, which later in Song of Solomon is associated with a, a beautiful figure, a fruitful womb, 
But her story is not very happy. Look at verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We don't know how Ur was wicked in God's sight. But God has not taken the life of anyone who displeased them since the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the first time in Scripture that God kills an individual person. And you have to wonder, of whom could that verse not be written? Right? Who wasn't wicked? Who wasn't a pagan? Who wasn't lost? Who wasn't rebellious? What did this man do? I don't know. But it's a reminder, lest we forget when we read about the mess and the muck, that God is immeasurably holy. We're meant to see that. We're not meant to forget that. God is blindingly holy. But Tamar is now a childless widow. If she stays that way, she'll not only be considered a cursed failure in her culture, she'll probably end up destitute, which is a very sad thing about culture, but in, in, you know, what good was a woman who couldn't bear children? What good was a woman who had had children die? It's, it's a very horrible thing, but that's the way it would have been. She would have been completely destitute, most likely. Verse eight. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Judah, who, if you'll notice here, can't even bring himself to say Tamar's name. It's not in the text. I think that's interesting. Enacts the common Near Eastern custom at this time of Leverite-Leveret marriage. That later will be formalized, of course, in the law of Moses for Israel. Unfortunately, though, notice this. Judah is not telling Onan to marry Tamar. He's telling Onan to get her pregnant for Ur's sake. She stays Onan's sister-in-law and doesn't become his wife. So as Judah sees it, keep this in mind, don't sanitize these men. Tamar is entitled to bear children from another one of the sons, as Judah sees it, but not to be a wife. So Judah isn't really concerned about Tamar's well-being. Right? He just wants her, or he wants to make sure Ur doesn't lose his chance to have an heir since he's dead. Look at verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. That's in the Bible. So Onan is a greedy, wicked individual. Okay? Now, I know... Trust me, I had to read it out loud. I know some of the things we read in Scripture are uncomfortable. Right? I mean, have you ever read Ezekiel? Some of the things are very embarrassing even. But beloved, we should still read them. And we should teach them to our children. This is God's Word. This is God's Word. We ought not to think ourselves too righteous for what the Holy Spirit has inspired. There's a reason we get such disgusting details. Beloved, this is where God works His salvation. And if God doesn't work it where it's disgusting and shameful, sinners have no hope. So we had better hear the Word of God and what He has decided to tell us. Onan knows 
that if Tamar gets pregnant and has a boy, that son would be considered the firstborn. He'd get a double portion of Judah's estate, so he doesn't want Tamar to get pregnant. So he treats her like human trash, which is what he's doing to her. He does this every time he goes into her. Okay, If he's not there to produce a child, what is he doing with her? Using her. That's what he's doing. He can just take advantage of her whenever he gets the urge. He can use her. But he doesn't want to lose any money, so he's, he's, a, he's a great guy. And in verse 10, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Twice in what? Nine, ten verses, God has individually killed two people. Again, just so we're clear, God is holy. This is what we're up against. God is holy. And apparently, God does not wish for women to be used, beloved. We learn even in First Timothy, remember, remember that, how seriously God takes it when a man is unwilling to fulfill his responsibilities to a woman and to his family. He's worse than an unbeliever. He's of the stock of Ur and Onan. God had promised that he would make the patriarchs fruitful. So every time Onan does this, he's showing complete disregard for God in what he does with Tamar. People always suffer when we disregard God. What Onan did was so wicked... That once again, God kills a man for it. Remember that. Don't miss that. This is the first time you see God kill individual people. And look what one of those reasons is. We don't know what Ur did. We know precisely what Onan did. Now Judah only has Judah. I don't know who Judah is. Judah only has one son left. And so the custom would be that he give his third son to Tamar. But now Judah is superstitious. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So rather than seeing that the Lord has put his sons to death because they were so wicked, Judah thinks it's Tamar's fault. There's something messed up about Tamar. She's troubled. So he doesn't want to risk his last son messing with her, which that sounds about right, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't this happen so often? You remember high school? Remember high school? Guys can mess around indiscriminately with women and their heroes among their peers. The girls, however, get called names and disregarded and called trash. Humans do not want to take responsibility for their own actions, but they love to judge the actions of others. We are a wicked race of people. So Judah postpones the decision, and he has no intention, really, you'll see that later, of actually giving Shelah to Tamar, because if he died, if Shelah dies, Judah will be as childless as Tamar is. So he sort of, you know, promises Shelah to Tamar, leaves her in limbo, of course, by doing so. She's a grown woman, this is a boy. She's betrothed to this boy, which means she can't marry anyone else, she's stuck It's very unlikely that Judah would ever give Shelah to Tamar, so he washes his hands of it by sending her back to her father's house. That's that's very odd. She's not part of her father's house anymore. She's part of Judah's house now. She doesn't belong there 
anymore with her father's house. Look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Shelah, or Shelah, sorry, was grown up by now, but Judah has still not given Tamar to him. So she's still a childless widow in her father's house, betrothed to a man she's not going to get. But Judah is also trapped because of his deceit. Shelah can't marry anyone else either, since Judah has promised him to Tamar. Right, It would make Judah look bad. If he marries Tamar, though, Judah thinks he'll die. So he's really stuck. Well, then Judah's wife dies, which eliminates the possibility that he will have any more children, as far as he knows. He's stuck Now his line might die out, so when he's done mourning, he goes to see his sheep shearers. Well, because that work was so difficult and dirty, it was usually accompanied by festivals of different kinds where there would be, among other things, of course, you know, a little a little vino, a little sauce. So Judah probably has himself some fun, gets a little soused, maybe he's hung over. Now now we've seen something like this before in the line of Jacob, haven't we? Bad things happen when you lose control of your senses and in the vicinity is a woman scorned. Bad things happen. Verse 13. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in Marriage. So Tamar knows she's been lied to. So she springs into action to secure her right to a son in Judah's family. We get a sense of how important this is to her in the fact that she's willing to risk her life to get this. So what does she do? She puts on a veil, poses as a prostitute along the way that Judah, her father-in-law, will be traveling. She will try to conceive a son by her father-in-law, by tricking him. This will eventually be forbidden, of course, in the law, in Leviticus 18 and 20, but we aren't there yet. In the leveret customs of Tamar's day, apparently a father-in-law could raise up offspring for his deceased son. So at Anayim, Tamar will try to deceive the man who has deceived her. Pick it up in verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? Judah had no idea it was Tamar. Right? And again, I don't know the duration of time, but I wonder if it's because, given the story's past, I wonder if it's because, you know, either he's, you know, a little bit intoxicated or maybe hungover. I don't know, but either way, he can't tell it's her. He has no idea. Interestingly, more of a reason to think that's part of what's going on. The name Anayim, where this happened, actually means the opening of the eyes. And Judah's eyes are completely closed to the fact that this is his daughter-in-law. And Tamar plays her part very well. What will you give me that you may come into me? There's a transaction here. Pick it up in verse 17. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge... Until you send it. Right? So the, the price is a goat. Judah is a true gentleman. A goat. What will you give me 
If you give me a pledge, she says, okay, if you give me a pledge until you send it. Verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Judah really wanted to be with her. Because what he gives to her as a pledge for this goat is unbelievable in this culture. The signet or seal is like a stamp set or a like a cylindrical seal that was Judah's mark of identification. It's like a picture ID today. His staff, of course, is a symbol of authority. Everybody, every at least man would have had one, would have been extremely practical to have. Those usually had a carved top that would mark who owned it, whose it was. You figure there's staffs everywhere. you got to know whose is whose. In other words, Judah gave the equivalent of his personal insignia as collateral to a prostitute for a little goat. This is like giving a stranger your driver's license and your credit card at a seedy hotel. It's precisely what is happening here. Look at the second part of verse 18. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So she returns safely to her father's house, but she's pregnant and she's pregnant with her father-in-law's baby. When he comes to his senses, Judah, of course, is very anxious to get his personal things back as soon as possible. Verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. So doesn't do it himself. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Judah's only concern is his reputation. Okay, all right, well... That's over and done with. Oh, well, we didn't get my stuff back, right? He's lost his credit card by accident in a brothel. He doesn't want to become the laughing stock of the locals. If only he had the same concern for the childless widow that is his daughter-in-law continuing to waste away in her father's house, but he doesn't. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Just without so much of a hearing to find out what happened. You know, he couldn't ask her because she doesn't live there. Right? What concern has he had for her until now? Judah, who up to this point, again, has been acting like the woman doesn't exist, orders that she be brought outside the town gate and burned to death. Do you know what we need to understand at this point in this text? Judah was a self-righteous, devious, hypocritical pig. Period. How dare you feign righteousness and morality when you hear that your daughter-in-law is pregnant by immorality after what you have been doing. 
Are you kidding me? You know where Judah would have been if he was alive when Jesus was? He would have been standing there about to stone that adulterous woman to death. In spite of his own sins and his own wickedness. In Israel, the usual punishment for adultery would be death by stoning. What, what is this? I mean, what, he goes way beyond that. Burn her to death. Burn her alive. He hates her. He blames her for the death of his sons with no thought whatsoever for the fact that God had killed his sons because they were so wicked. She's betrothed to his son, Shelah, but he doesn't want her to marry him either. So his line is in jeopardy. But now, oh, look at this fortuitous turn. I can get her out of the way. We'll have her burned to death. He can wash his hands of her. Just so we're clear. This is the line of the Messiah. This is the line of the Messiah. Tamar is golden. She waits until the last possible moment to defend herself. Just to make it all as clear as Day. Pick it up in verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. The signet and the cord and the staff. Slay, queen. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. She stakes her honor And her life on this moment to get what is rightfully hers by marriage to prove her innocence. She stakes everything on the pledge which at the very last moment publicly established the father of the child in such a way that Judah himself has to reveal. Has to reveal her innocence. It's his license. It's his credit card. Right? What can he do? Look at verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, now this is big. This is great. Here's the turn. She is more righteous than I. Right, That's right. The Canaanite woman that dressed as a prostitute to fool her father-in-law is more righteous than the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. She is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Shelah. He was messing with her the whole time. He caused this is what he's saying. And he did not know her again. Now he recognizes her. She was the prostitute. And he's the father of her child. He was about to burn her to death. Judah admits it all. He even admits that it's his fault. He forced her into it because he didn't keep his word to Tamar with Shelah. She is more righteous than I. Now, here's where... If we want Judah now to be burned alive, we need to remember what it means that we are all sinners. The only thing everyone in this room deserves is damnation. Don't ever forget this. Was I too rough on Judah when I called him a pig, 
I'm a pig. I know what they look like. If Judah gets burned for this, well, so do I. Who doesn't? You see what's happening here? Some get killed on the spot. Some go right on living. Some can fool their father-in-law as a prostitute and get pregnant and will end up in the line of the Messiah. Others, we don't even know what they did. And God kills them outright. This is the beginning of Judah's transformation in the story. Remember, we thought it was Joseph's story. Remember? After this, in chapter 44, later, 34, he'll return to his brothers, right? He'll show deep concern for his elderly father that's genuine. He'll even offer himself to be Joseph's slave in place of Benjamin because he knows Jacob loves Benjamin so much. In fact, beloved, Jacob will one day give to Judah the greatest blessing of all the sons. In 49, 8 through 12, Judah, your brother shall praise you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. But in Genesis 38, do you know who the heroine of the story is? Tamar. Tamar, the woman who pretended to be a prostitute to deceive and become pregnant by her father-in-law. She, we think we have all God figured out, or have God all figured out, and then we read the Bible. While Judah was treating her unjustly by withholding Shelah from her, placing the line of Judah, which will have to have, in jeopardy, Tamar was bound and determined to have a child in Judah's family. I will not let you go until you bless me. Same thing, the Canaanite, the Canaanite was determined to give descendants to Abraham. And since the greater story of all scripture is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, Tamar is a hero in this story. Verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. But there's a struggle in the womb again. Right? We've seen this before, as there had been in the birth of Jacob and Esau. Well, who would have the honor and the privilege of being the firstborn? Verse 28. And when she was in labor... One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means a breach, right? Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. It's too late. And his name was called Zerah. The midwife is shocked, right? There's no logical or biological reason. Or there's no more logical or biological reason for Perez coming out first, even though Zerah's hand had first come out, than there was for Jacob out of the womb grabbing onto Esau's heel. What's going on in the births of these children in this family? Well, the decision is God's. The selection is His. This is God's right, and He takes it. Every time God used Tamar's deception of disobedient Judah to continue the line of Judah. That's what we just saw. 
She has twins, Perez and Zerah. Ten generations later in Ruth 4, 18 through 22, the line of Judah, the line of Perez, brings forth who? The great King David. And then Matthew 1 reveals that this Perez was not only the forefather of David, the king, beloved, but of the king of kings, Jesus Christ himself. All the filth of Genesis 38 stands right there for all the world to see in the earthly genealogy of Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 1. Judah, Tamar, Perez, Zerah, they're all there. Why doesn't God want to wash his hands of these names and these stories? Why, beloved? Women were normally excluded from genealogies, but not Jesus' genealogy. He had a cultural chance not to put those names and those stories in there. They're there. Right? The same book that tells you what's so disgusting in verse 9 tells you where Jesus comes from later in Matthew 1. Besides Mary, Matthew mentions four other women, all foreigners, all scandalous. Tamar was a Canaanite who continued the line that produced Jesus. How did she do that? Well, by pretending to be a prostitute so Judah would sleep with her. Rahab was a Canaanite also, and a former prostitute, as far as we know, who lied to protect Israelite spies. Ruth, also a childless widow of an Israelite, was a Moabite who went to the threshing floor at night to get Boaz to act as her kinsman redeemer. And then Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, was a Hittite who had an adulterous relationship with King David. Of course, David would later have her husband killed and then marry her. And so all these scandalous names and scandalous acts and scandalous stories took place in the family line of Judah from whom Jesus Christ would be born. Beloved, the links in the chain from Adam to the Messiah are so dirty and stained with sin and wickedness, it's unbelievable. Some of the nastiest things that happen in humanity happen in his line. The story of Judah and Tamar is there to assure Israel, as they would have received it, that God can accomplish his plan of salvation, even through Israel's ongoing disobedience and the deception of a Canaanite woman. What do you think it was like to read that as you're about to enter the promised land? That, that Really? This is what continued the family line of Judah all the way to the Messiah so that eventually Jesus would be born. What can stop? What can hinder? What can undo or derail God's plan of salvation? What? What? Beloved, nothing. Nothing. Why is God so intent on working in such shameful actions to bring his son into the world? Why didn't he sanitize the story? Well, because he's going to sanitize us with his son's blood. 
And that will be sufficient to do the dirty work of pardoning you and me. Trust him. Trust him for you as you ponder all your disobedience and deception on the long road from here to home. We get so confused about our lives, where they're going, the world in which we live. Beloved, do we not understand the depths of his love and his grace for us? The utter impossibility that anything can stop his promises to us. It ought to thrill your soul and mine that God doesn't blush when he saves. This is the only hope we have for salvation in a world like ours. Consider God's commitment to salvation and remember that you are its recipient. But just before we go, what's going on here? I thought we were talking about Joseph. What is this intrusion? This interruption? Why is this smack dab in the middle interrupting this story? Was this a mistake by the editor? Is it, is it out of place? I don't think so. The reason... So much, I hope actually all of my preaching seems to beat the same drum is because the Bible is so committed, as I understand it, to telling us the same things over and over and over again. Beloved, it's God's commitment to us and to His plan of salvation that is going to save us. We will always be the beneficiaries. He will always be the benefactor. Always. Do we understand then how important it is to realize that the sin and wickedness of our world are tools in his hand to get us there, not hindrances, keeping us from him? Every time Jesus touched a leper, he was telling you, I will come to you. You will not make me dirty. I will make you clean. I love how Vodibachum traced this force. God made a promise. You remember this? Back in Genesis 3.15, what is that promise? It's the promise of a seed. He pronounced that promise in a curse against the serpent. And the serpent believes this because what do you see in the very next chapter of Genesis? We see the first murder. What is the first murder? The seed of the serpent, Cain, kills the seed of the woman, Abel. So we're still waiting for the promised seed to come to fruition. Eventually, Scripture makes its way to this man named Abraham, or to a man named Terah, who has an offspring named Abraham. God makes a promise to him that involves, among other things, seed. But that's a significant promise to them because the wife of this particular man was barren. And she was too old for seed. So how do you get a promised seed if the seed-bearing woman can't bear seed? Well, the answer is God is going to have to intervene and do it. No, actually, the answer is Hagar. Right? We'll just, we'll, well, we'll, we'll come up with our own plan. We'll get her. But God hadn't said a seed. Any seed will do. God had promised the seed. Ishmael was a seed. He was not the seed. Isaac, the second son, born later, was the seed. Well, Isaac, story picks up him 
goes on, and he and his wife, Rebecca, they have twins. Certainly, the older will carry the promise. No, the promise is not about birth order. It's about election. The older will serve the younger. Genesis 25, 23. So it's not Esau, it's Jacob. Jacob goes on, his story picks up, and if there's going to be a seed, he has to find a wife. So he goes to Laban. Meets Laban's younger daughter, Rachel. He falls in love. He's found the one. He works for seven years and gets married only to wake up the next morning to the other sister that he didn't think was pretty and he didn't like. But it's not a love story. It's an election story. But the one he loves, guess what? She's also barren. Like Sarah. And she cannot bear children until way later in the story when she gives birth to a son named Joseph and then to another named Benjamin. And then she dies. Joseph is loved above all his brothers because he's the son of the beloved wife. But he was not the promised seed. Remember this. Joseph is not the promised seed. It would not come through his line. That's not the purpose of his story. The story of the Bible, though, is the story of the seed. Remember, the question really is why is Joseph interrupting Judah's story? The woman Jacob didn't even want. When her sister couldn't have children, she could. And she gives birth to Reuben, or Reuben, sorry, Simeon, Levi, the father of the priesthood in Israel, and Judah. As we come to Genesis 37, we're introduced to the story of Joseph. So that when chapter 38 picks up with Judah, we think it's out of place. Because now we read this sordid tale of Judah and Tamar, the worst moment in Judah's life. Why is that there in the midst of the story about Joseph? Because it's not about Joseph, it's about Judah. Well then why show him at his lowest point? Because God has to redeem him to take his place at the head of the family and be identified as the promised seed because of the electing work of God. And we have just found out that Judah is not a good man in chapter 37. At what moment do we see his redemption? I think later in chapter 44, when Judah says to his father, send me with the boy Benjamin. I know you love him. So if anything happens to him, I will be his substitute. Judah goes on to have another son. To be clear, a great, 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 great grandson. His name is David. Just like his father Judah, he shows up on the scene like his great, 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 great grandfather did. Well, what does David do when this seed shows up on the scene? After he's finally been identified as the promised seed, he brings forth his presence with so much power and authority, it destroys the Philistines. He walked down into a valley where there had been a giant making a proposition, send a man to fight with me. If he defeats me, we will serve you. If I defeat him, you will all serve me, serve us. David goes down and fights the giant as the representative substitute for God's people. 
wins victory over the giant, and in so doing, wins victory on behalf of all God's people until the day when the great King David, descendant of Judah, eventually has a son, a greater son, a greater king. They will call him the lion of the tribe of Judah, the best, most ferocious savior of them all. And so the New Testament opens in Matthew 1 with a genealogy. A genealogy which screams that the God who made the promise in Genesis 3 has fulfilled that promise. Matthew 1 is the line of the promised seed who will crush the serpent's head. And do you know who's in it? Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba and David and Judah. They're all in it. What does this king do? David's greater son named Jesus. Well, he does what his forebears, Judah and David, did. He stands as a substitute on behalf of God's people. He lays down his life and accepts the wrath of God poured out on him that you and I might be cleaned and win victory through him. And be rescued by Him. So beloved, the question is, what is it about your life and your story and your sins and your embarrassments and your failures and your sufferings that you think will throw a kink in this plan now? God has overseen this since the dawn of time through disgusting mess like Genesis 38. Anybody in here done this yet? I don't think so. Don't, because I don't know how I'll counsel you through that one. Don't anybody do this craziness. The Bible is for our assurance in the midst of all these questions. Every time God moves unashamedly in scandal, He's reminding us that we will never be more righteous than He is. That our goodness is never what it will take to win His favor. Every time you hear somebody tell you, or if this is what you believe, that you are too far gone, that what you have done God could never forgive, just read them the Bible. Just read them the Bible. God's book is full of people we wouldn't forgive. And God will. I mean, beloved, what do you think the eternal feast will be like with Judah and Tamar and all sitting at the same table? You know how it's not awkward? Because Jesus washes away sins. The reconciling work he will do. God has chosen to move in the most dark and wicked places so that you and I would know there is nothing that can stop the march of his promise. Nothing. For that is exactly what can separate you and I from his love. Nothing. Nothing. Rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for your profound and indescribable lack of shame in the people you mean to save. Lord, we, we, we don't know how much you've forgiven. We have really no clue of the depth of your son's suffering, what it felt like. But Father, we will live in its glory and provision for all eternity. Thus saith the Lord. So Father, watch over your people as they go tonight. Keep our minds fixed on you. The world is dark, it's full of evil, and so are we. And so Father, keep us believing until the last sun goes down. Please, Father, we trust in you. We trust in you. We ask and pray for these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.